Previously on Flying the Line, displaced Braniff pilots watch as the first right of hire provisions outlined in the Airline Deregulation Act of 1978 essentially evaporate. This podcast is brought to you by the Airline Pilots Association. Alpa supports its pilots through a variety of resources, including Flight Finder, located in the Alpa app. Flight Finder is the most comprehensive resource for jump seat today, providing real-time access and availability for your commute to or from work. Download the app at alpaorg apps or in your smart device's app store. Welcome to the Flying the Line podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association, a bridge from the book Flying the Line, Volume 2, by George E. Hopkins. Chapter 6. O'Donnell's Dilemmas, The Patco Strike, Braniff, and Furloughs, Part 2. The Professional Air Traffic Controllers Organization, or PATCO, strike of 1981, provides another example of just how tricky the furlough issue could be for labor. When PATCO went on strike against the federal government in August 1981, many pilots were so incensed at O'Donnell's handling of it that they mounted a serious effort to recall him from office. Because of the impact a PATCO strike could have on the working environment of airline pilots, O'Donnell necessarily had to involve himself in it. The restrictions on airline operations that the strike generated almost certainly played a role in the bankruptcy of some small carriers, notably Air New England, and might well have aggravated the troubles of others, including Braniff. For O'Donnell, the PATCO strike was almost as big a challenge as Braniff, Neither crisis, no matter what he did, was likely to win him many friends. Alpa and Patco had a symbiotic relationship in that both worked inside a mutually dependent system. Not surprisingly, it had deep internal tensions. Many airline pilots saw Patco as irresponsibly aggressive, while many Patco members viewed pilots as pampered prima donnas. This friction often surfaced in the verbal exchanges between pilots and controllers. On-the-frequency conversations were often characterized by sarcasm and even outright nastiness. As a committed trade unionist, O'Donnell strived to create an atmosphere of mutual cooperation between PATCO and ALPA, but his efforts generated an irate reaction from many airline pilots. The source of this perceived hostility came down to the question of authority. Pilots have historically disliked giving up their command authority to anybody. The nature of the modern air traffic control system meant that as the airline industry developed, air traffic controllers would inevitably assume de facto command authority in many situations. PATCO owed its origins partly to the feeling of many controllers that their job did not receive the same respect as airline pilots' profession. But in another sense, a rift existed between pilots and controllers that was primarily sociological in origin. Typically, controllers learned their trade in the military as enlisted personnel who were under the command of pilot officers. When Patco began stressing the similarity of their responsibilities, even going so far as to suggest that controllers should receive equal pay for equal work, many airline pilots heartily disagreed. 
During the long build-up to the PATCO strike, the controller's tactics against the federal government earned them the animosity of a clear majority of airline pilots. While many pilots felt the controllers had legitimate grievances, these sympathies did not extend to PATCO, its leadership, or, most importantly, its tactics. On at least two occasions before 1981, PATCO members demonstrated their unhappiness with the FAA and its administrator, Langhorn Bond, by working to the book. This tactic, which airline pilots had occasionally used themselves, might at first glance seem to fall within acceptable parameters. But PATCO's case was different. When pilots used the slowdown tactic, it was against private employers and affected nobody else. When PATCO engaged in a slowdown, it was against the U.S. government. Far worse, a PATCO slowdown detrimentally impacted others, most directly the airlines that pilots depended on for a living. For example, during a one-day slowdown in August 1980 at a single airport, Chicago O'Hare, PATCO cost the airlines almost a million dollars in excess fuel alone. The pilots had one more reason to be unlikely to support a walkout by PATCO. Strikes by federal employees were illegal. Questions of legality aside, strikes are traditionally about muscle. An element within PATCO believed that if it could hold its 13,000 members on the picket line, they could shut down the nation's air transportation system and force the government to meet their demands. The FAA administrator warned PATCO's leaders that their demands were excessive and that he would crack down hard on them if they went on strike. In January 1981, shortly before Ronald Reagan took office, Bond explicitly told PATCO that the FAA had a contingency plan in place to break a controller's strike. He warned PATCO that the FAA's plan involved the use of military personnel, hiring permanent replacements, and implementing aggressive criminal prosecution designed to force strikers to cross the picket line. Bond also warned PATCO's leaders that despite their endorsement of Ronald Reagan in the 1980 campaign, they should not expect more lenient treatment from incoming Secretary of Transportation Drew Lewis. Bond's warning was prophetic, and his disgust with PATCO's leadership was one of the few things he and J.J. O'Donnell agreed upon. By early 1981, a more radical element had replaced much of PATCO's original leadership. Barely a week before the strike, Robert Poley displaced John Layden as PATCO president, a man O'Donnell had known and respected since before assuming ALPA's presidency. In fact, O'Donnell's relationship with PATCO had become quite close during Layden's tenure. When Poley tricked Layden into resigning, the nature of O'Donnell's relationship with PATCO changed. As an AFL-CIO Executive Council Vice President, O'Donnell became AFL-CIO President George Meany's troubleshooter and special envoy to other airline unions. He enjoyed a similar relationship with Lane Kirkland, Meany's successor. The AFL-CIO looked to O'Donnell as a mediating influence on PATCO because of his long friendship with Layden. On one occasion, Layden had invited O'Donnell to address the PATCO convention in Honolulu. But Bob Poley was not John Layden. 
During a May 1981 meeting between Poli, Layden, and O'Donnell, Poli announced that the PATCO strike would have the silent support of the Reagan administration. Poli insisted that he had a commitment from Reagan owing to PATCO's endorsement of his 1980 candidacy and that the strike would be short. O'Donnell, because of his close contacts with the Reagan people, knew that Poli was either lying or a fool. Reagan came to the White House committed to a radical restructuring of American society, and one of his targets was organized labor. He clearly meant to dismantle what he called the welfare state because he saw it as a drag on economic growth. Reagan's cheery slogan, A Rising Tide Lifts All Boats, explained how he believed economic growth would cure America's ills. But implicit in the supply-side economics that Reagan championed was that any institution that hampered the free flow of market economics was counterproductive. Traditionally, conservatives viewed labor unions as a drag on economic growth, a dead weight carried on entrepreneurial backs. Furthermore, conservatives had long believed that governmental favoritism was the base on which organized labor's power rested. In short, organized labor would clearly be a target of the Reagan Revolution. Bob Poley completely misunderstood this fact, but O'Donnell did not. In late July, at a national meeting of PADCO's executive board, the radicals and their opponents fought it out. With the strike issue hanging in the balance, Poley engineered an internal coup that ousted Leyden. O'Donnell followed these events with great interest. When Patco's executive board named Poli to replace Layden, Poli proceeded to set the strike date for the first week of August, 1981. With O'Donnell warning him that Alpa would not support the strike, Poli agreed to delay it until after a meeting with the AFL-CIO Executive Council on August 2nd. Patco ignored the advice of the AFL-CIO to rethink their strike plans. The following day, Poli set up picket lines at O'Hare. Lane Kirkland was unhappy about this, but he would not cross Patco's picket line. He canceled his return flight, rented a car, and drove home to Washington, D.C. O'Donnell had been talking to Drew Lewis regularly for months and knew that the Reagan administration would give Patco no quarter. O'Donnell also knew that rank-and-file airline pilots would cheer Patco's demise even if it tarnished Alpa in the process. This fact left O'Donnell with a dilemma. Getting the Patco strike settled as soon as possible was in everybody's interest. But to mediate the strike, to act as an effective go-between, O'Donnell would have to appear conciliatory to both sides. His private sympathies were, of course, entirely opposed to Patco, and particularly Poli, who he considered unreliable and irradical but he couldn't let his distaste show. Had O'Donnell been left alone, he might well have engineered a compromise that would have settled the strike and salvaged the professional careers of thousands of PATCO members. As we have seen, O'Donnell was a gifted mediator whose contacts with all parties were intimate. O'Donnell had access to the top levels of PATCO while simultaneously remaining on close terms with Lewis the Rankin administration's point man in the Patco strike. But circumstances and bad luck prevented O'Donnell from stopping the Patco strike. 
hostility developed among many ALPA members who saw O'Donnell's efforts at conciliation as favorable to Patco. Should O'Donnell persist in his efforts, the political fallout within ALPA would be costly. Although August was far too early to announce his candidacy for re-election to a fourth term as ALPA's president, O'Donnell's political antenna were nevertheless up. He had no intention of suffering political damage within ALPA because of Patco's leaders. On August 5, 1981, just two days into the Patco strike, at precisely when O'Donnell could have been the most effective at mediating an end to it, his enemies inside ALPA struck. The Eastern pilots passed a resolution condemning O'Donnell's activities in the strike. It accused O'Donnell of favoring Patco and called for his resignation. O'Donnell, sensing the mischief his enemies could make for him politically with such charges, withdrew from active involvement in the effort to end the strike. Shortly thereafter, Drew Lewis, with whom O'Donnell had conferred repeatedly on the Patco strike, called to ask for help. Lewis particularly wanted to know Poli's whereabouts, since he had gone into hiding. O'Donnell was now under dire political stress within ALPA and dared not take any further active role in the attempt to settle the strike. And so, the Patco tragedy played itself out, using a combination of military controllers, crossovers, and supervisory personnel, the air traffic control system limped along while permanent replacements were hired and trained to take over for the Patco strikers. The FAA drastically reduced access to the air traffic control system for many months, and while the hardship on general aviation was enormous, the airlines came out better than anyone had hoped. The mass layoffs that O'Donnell had feared did not materialize. Once the Reagan administration decided to break PATCO, only one thing could have saved it, ALPA's direct intervention. The only rubric under which ALPA would have honored PATCO's picket lines was safety. On August 19, 1981, O'Donnell laid that possibility to rest. At a press conference in Washington, D.C., he refuted charges made by striking PATCO members that the system was unsafe armed with an executive board resolution affirming that the air traffic control system was functioning safely under reduced capacity, O'Donnell explained to a large gathering of news media that ALPA's air traffic control committee was closely monitoring the situation. Ultimately, the Reagan administration got public assurance that ALPA would not rescue PATCO. Despite O'Donnell's best efforts, his handling of the Patco strike was very self-damaging. With Eastern's pilots savagely denouncing him, O'Donnell felt under more pressure than ever before. During the autumn 1981 executive board meeting, O'Donnell would face a formidable recall movement, spearheaded by his own Eastern pilot group. To forestall it, O'Donnell gave what many observers took to be a promise that if they would reject Eastern's recall resolution, he would not stand for re-election in 1982. The O'Donnell era seemed to be over, but it wasn't. Not quite. Next time on Flying the Line, J.J. O'Donnell opts not to seek re-election 
paving the way for a new kind of Alpha leader. Thank you for listening. This has been Chapter 6, Part 2 of Flying the Line 2 by George E. Hopkins, Copyright 2000. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast. To listen and subscribe to more in this series, please check us out online at alpa.org or on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or other podcast platforms. Until next time, this is the Flying the Line podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association International. Production copyright ALPA 2023, all rights reserved.